Disrupt is actually one of my pet peeve words. I don't like the way it's usually used in healthcare. This is not the same thing as disrupting you know, a shopping experience. You, know, you have to be able to understand you know, what is mission critical in the system that I'm trying to change. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. That's really empowering, right? Because now if you're an engineer and you're trying something, you don't have to like get approval of a bunch of different layers of management. You just go try something and then when it works, you hear it worked. That's Mark Zuckerberg talking to TechCrunch in 2013 about his attitude, move fast and break things. Move fast has been a Silicon Valley philosophy for years, and it's worked. It's led to massively publicly traded companies like Facebook and Uber and solidified the strategy, take risks, and in Uber's case, break laws in order to grow. Now, you cannot do that with healthcare startups. There is a, a real tension, I think, between kind of this, you know, move fast, break things, Silicon Valley, you know, stereotype, right? Which I think at this point, it really is a stereotype. I think Silicon Valley is really trying to break out of that. Um, but also the, the, the Hippocratic Oath of healthcare, right? The, the, the foundation of healthcare, first do no harm. That's Greg Yap, investor at Menlo Ventures. He's an expert in healthcare startups. There are, as you said, a lot of rules in healthcare, right? The, you know, you've got you know, got privacy rules around HIPAA. You've got uh, the FDA regulating what people. Well, not say only are there rules system. around healthcare, but I mean, there are rules around taxi cabs in in San Francisco. But violating them is, you know, it's San Francisco probably takes it seriously. It's not the end of the world. Uber broke a, a couple of rules and and is a multi billion dollar company. HIPAA and and federal rules are really ironclad and 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 the the feds are not messing around yes this. yeah absolutely and and I, I think it is you know there are consequences to be paid I think people violate those rules at their peril right and and uh, I think there are co different consequences to different kinds of rules right I think if you if you violate FDA right 
I think the 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 crackdown is very severe. I think in this in this era, you I think there have been a lot of violations on privacy, right? A lot of issues with how privacy in healthcare is done. Um, but as you say, there are real consequences to that. Yap is an investor in Clear Labs, Delphi Diagnostics, Sentai Biosciences, and Vital Labs, among others. He's got 20 years experience as an executive in the life sciences. I think the key issue is that they have to, they have to understand the system that they're coming into, right? You got you always have to understand your customer, right? But in many spaces outside of healthcare, that the customer is a simpler, who is your customer is a simpler question to answer, right? In 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 healthcare, you have to understand the, your end user, you have to understand the physician, you have to understand the regulator, the payer. I think if you don't understand the situation that you're coming in, then you you come in at your own peril, right? Then you're likely to to break something. Thing that's mission critical, right? When you, you 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 mentioned the word disrupt, disrupt is actually one of my pet peeve words. I don't I don't like the way it's usually used in healthcare, because if you disrupt someone's healthcare, they could die, right? This is not the same thing as disrupting you know, a shopping experience, right? You you have to where where the consequences of that are a lot less severe. You you have to be able to understand you know what is mission critical in the system that I'm trying to change, right? And how do I avoid trying to change too many mission critical things all at the same time. Do most of the startups you invest in understand that tension, that they have to follow the rules? Yeah, well, so that's the big limiter in how many startups that I, uh, I invest in, frankly, right? I see a lot of great technologies that can have a real impact in outcomes in healthcare. Uh, the place that most of them are, are lacking, and the reason why you know, I'm always looking to try to put more money into the space, is, is understanding of the business model context, understanding of the market in which they operate. You know, that's been the big challenge for me in, in healthcare. I mean, having spent 20 years in this space, I at least have some idea where the landmines are. I certainly don't know where all the landmines are. But when I see a company that 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 doesn't have that, that isn't to the level where they, where they understand some of the issues that they're going to face, you know, it's something I can't afford. To give me give me an example of an issue. And you said understand the marketplace. What are what are you know, maybe they not understanding? I mean, the, the hardest part in healthcare, frankly, is getting paid. Right. I mean, all these new technologies, you know, the, even if they can provide a customer benefit, you know, what is the return on investment to the different stakeholders? Right. The patient may have a better outcome, but the physician that's treating them, are they are they financially incented to prescribe? Right. Is the, does the payer get a benefit given how long that a, a given patient is likely to stay with their employer and 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 therefore with that insurer? You know, is this something that requires a, a enormous amount of clinical data to get to regulatory approval? Right. I think the one of the challenges for me as an investor is that I can yeah, obviously I can only invest in a small number of companies. And so companies that have wonderful technology but really haven't thought through those issues deeply enough, right, or can't answer some of the questions that they're likely to face, you just it's a hard it's it's impossible to if I'm a startup, that's kind of frustrating to hear. If if I'm the startup, you're the investors. Yeah. You know, hey, look, I've got this amazing thing that does this amazing, has this amazing outcome, and you're saying, yeah, but but who's paying yeah. for it? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I think it's I think they're getting it from every investor, right? Uh, hopefully from. Well, every yeah, investor. I'm sure, but it's just you but, think, hey, look, I have this yeah. thing that cures something. Yeah. And 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 a, and a logical question from an investor is, yeah, but where are we gonna make money on that? Yes. And 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 so I am I am actually I'm trying to. Start up a new um, a new initiative that is kind of 
half interactive workshop, half peer community, you know, to try to help some of these entrepreneurs at a little greater scale, right? I can only work with, in my day job, I can only work with one, one entrepreneur at a time, right? But the idea of getting a, a group of entrepreneurs together, getting people from these, these customers who are frustrated themselves at getting pitched by startups that don't understand, you know, that they, you know, a, a hospital system profit margin is so low, you know, what is the amount of revenue that I'd need to generate from your from your technology for it to be worth my adoption you know some of these you know fundamental issues you know these the the customers are also frustrated right by having startups approach them with something that's whiz bang but doesn't align with their business realities and so that's one of the things that I'd, I'd love to do is to try to help some of the some of these entrepreneurs more at scale I can only invest in a small number of them but you know maybe there's a way to improve the the quality of digital health business models Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I have a friend who's a beer distributor, and he was explaining to me how even a, a one a bar works. You think the bar buys the beer and then sells it to the customer. It's way more complex than that. And healthcare's got to be just infinitely more complex. You think it is? Person goes to doctor, gets treatment. Insurance company plays doctor. That's the end of the story. But it is. There are so many intricacies that if you're going to be involved in a in a healthcare startup, that you have to understand. Yeah, that's one of the big things I'm I'm that I focus on. You know, uh, companies that I think are going to be disruptive in the in the right sense of the word. You know, is ones that where they can find an underserved part of the population and serve them more simply. Right. That's actually the original definition of disruptive innovation. A lot of people misuse I think misuse disruption. Right. But when Clayton Christensen, the guy who coined the term, the idea was to find an underserved portion of the market and give them something simple. It doesn't have to be a whiz-bang, fancy technology, something noisy and sexy. It has to be something that's simple for a group that isn't getting served by the incumbents. Right? And those, that's the kind of disruption that I'm, I'm interested in. Right? How do you find something uh, that, that you can make it simple? Right? Because the healthcare system, as you said, is really complex. Right? How can you make it simpler for you know, a... You know, niches in healthcare are really can be really big, and so how can you find something that's that's simpler for some subset of that of that system and, and really you know take the pain out of it for them? I have a plan that shows how we can have Medicare for all without raising taxes one cent on middle class families. I would think one of the biggest risks about being an investor in healthcare startups would be the absolutely unclear road ahead as to what the American healthcare system is going to be. President Elizabeth Warren 
would give you an entirely different roadmap. How do you invest when you don't know in a few years how the American healthcare system is going to work? Yeah. And so you hear, I think different investors have different lenses on this. You know, I think honestly, my, my lens as an investor is, is, is I try to be pragmatic, right? What is the world that we live in today? Right. I don't think the, the healthcare is a conservative industry, right? It's, it resists change. And, and so a lot of the changes that have been proposed could have beneficial effects. You know, a lot of them you know, could have could create challenges for other other subgroups of the population. Um, and so, you know, I think my my thesis has always been, you know, we have an existing healthcare system, find companies who can make money in the world that we have. Right. And that can also have can make money in a world of where value is more tightly associated with care. Right. Today, it really is still mostly fee for service. Right. You're getting paid for an activity. And so you have to be able to make money for the activity. Otherwise, if the world doesn't change dramatically, the company will not survive. Um, but, you know, I'm only interested in investing in companies that can st that can make money in a fee for service world, but can also make money when value really comes home to roost in healthcare. which, you know, it's got to come at some point. People were talking about it coming even a decade ago. It really hasn't happened yet. You know, how quickly that materializes, I think no one can say with any confidence. Um, but, you know, being able to find a value proposition, you know, and I look at remote patient monitoring, I think is a wonderful example there. Um, it's where, um, uh, uh, and we're invested, we're investing in this space. I'm, I would love to find more companies in the space, but where you can get paid uh, by Medicare for doing monitoring of a patient remotely, right? There are existing codes. The codes are getting better year over year. You know, more companies are coming into the space, but remote patient monitoring should enable better outcomes, right? You, you, it should enable less people walking into the doctor's office. It should enable less visits to the ER. If it doesn't do those things, right? If the company and the application that they've chosen don't deliver outcome benefits, then it's not going to be a good investment. Um, but in the world that existed a couple of years ago, uh, an investor had to fund all of the clinical studies to do that before they would get any revenue. No one would buy the, the technology until you actually had clinical data. Right now, the world has changed, right? Regulations have changed, and so you can get paid some for the monitoring. Um, and then you can spend, and hopefully the companies that I'd, I'd love to talk to about or love to talk to are the ones who are then using that time and that, and that revenue to be able to really demonstrate how their, their product makes a difference in the world. Are the regulators getting easier to work with? Are we beginning to see or are they beginning to see that in order to encourage interesting developments in the world of medicine that maybe not fewer regulations, but there needs to be a more friendly approach to disruption, to use a word you don't like? Um, I think there are pockets. Um, and remember, I like disruption in the context of the original use, sure. right, of being able to serve that underserved population. But um, I think the I think there are examples. You know, I think it's always a, a risk reward issue, and it's and you know, FDA obviously is a part of the government. Well, and, and if they politics. screw it up, people die. Yeah, yeah, and, you know. and and so they never want to get too far on the side yeah. of being open to to more risk. But I think places like how do you think about an AI algorithm, right? Which by its nature, a machine learning algorithm is designed to get smarter, right? You you feed more data into the algorithm, it gives you better decisions. You know, FDA has never dealt with that kind of software before, and its process, the previous process for how do you improve a piece of software is very onerous. 
And so I give them a lot of credit for trying to figure out ways to regulate an, a, an AI algorithm so that you don't have to freeze it, right? And you pump more data through that, you pump more real world evidence through that algorithm, that algorithm gets better. Do you have to then wait two, three more years before that algorithm can be used with patients? That would be terrible, right? That'd be awful for, for, for patients. And so FDA is trying to think about, you know, I don't think they have all the pieces there yet because, as you said, you know, they don't want to expose themselves to undue risk and they don't want to expose patients to undue risk. But the idea of how do you regulate a piece of software which is living, right? The minute the FDA regulator walks out the door, the software is different. Yeah. 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 And how do you how do you regulate that appropriately? Right. I think is really is really interesting. And they're being quite thoughtful and innovative on that. And I think the other area is software as a medical device. Right. In the same you know, they're they're used to regulating hardware devices. Right. Where a change in that might be a multi year process, you know, software. Right. Even if it's not an A.I. algorithm, you might rev a piece of software every day, every month. Well, right. Because, I mean, the average, uh, you know, Nest developer or Ring or yeah. whatnot. Hey, we're going to push out yeah. version 2.1. You know, it'll be seamless. The homeowner will yeah. never notice. You can't do that in, with medical software. Yeah, absolutely. And how do you how do you figure out what is the cadence that's appropriate for you know, more direct intervention, right? Supervision versus what can be pushed by the manufacturer as a process of continuous improvement. Right? I think those are that's another area. Software as a medical device, or SAMD, is another area where I think FDA is is being quite forethoughtful there. On about a fifth grade level, explain the new technologies to me. What has changed that has changed the face of, of developing new healthcare ideas, investing in healthcare, that kind of stuff? I think compute, right, is a huge impact, right? And I think you, this uh, can go a lot greater than a fifth grade level. A lot, of, a lot of these folks that are on your audience and a lot of the folks that sure. and you and, and others, you know, I think everyone appreciates how powerful you know, um, uh, big data and AI technologies have become. And frankly, I think they're slow to come to healthcare, right? Healthcare is regulated. It's conservative. Um, it's, a, it's a real challenge to bring some of these new technologies in. Uh, and therefore, I think there's a lot of places of intersection where technologies that have frankly been been uh, developed in other vertical markets, right, and have started to have an impact in those vertical markets, are just now coming to healthcare, or even not yet coming to healthcare, because it's just more difficult to to um, uh, from a stakeholder perspective. Instead of one customer, right, you might you have many stakeholders, right? You have patients and doctors and regulators and payers, you know who. In the in uh, some of our markets, you know, are the same person, right? They, they, there might not be regulation, right? The the customer might be the person who's actually the user, might be the person who's paying for the technology. And in healthcare, that's often not the case, and so that means that it's of how AI or big data has changed the way that that we're doing healthcare. So I think it's still really early days, right? I think that. Um, in some sense, you know, AI has been in life sciences for a number of years since the advent of genomics. Right? I, mean, I think the ability to manipulate genome scale data right, is, is basically impossible without sophisticated algorithms and machine learning. Right? You're just getting too much data. And so back in the 90s, when I first came into healthcare, you know, that the, they were already starting to use machine learning and AI as part of the drug discovery process. And the first drugs that, that have been touched by genomics are now starting to come to the clinic. Um, so it's having an impact there. But in terms of frontline care, 
you know, I think AI is still at the at the very earliest stages of of touching you know uh, of touching actual patients you know, right in front of them, right? But things like AI to do uh, radiology examinations, AI for pathology, AI to triage patients, you know, and and identify those patients at greatest risk that need the most care. You know, we have lots of systems, lots of manual systems in healthcare, right? And and my belief is that uh, that AI technologies will not replace physicians, right? But will augment them and allow them to spend time actually person to person, right? While the uh, while these technologies make it more efficient for them to to spend their time with the people who need them the most. You got somewhat specific about AI for in an ER that kind of thing. You know, speculate for me, or maybe there are companies that you're already working with and what they're working on. Uh, but 10 years from now or five years from now, I walk into the doctor's office, I walk into the, into the ER or whatnot. What am I going to see or do in which I say, oh, that, okay, that's what's happening. There's where the computing power is. Yes. Well, I think, first of all, hopefully you'll walk into the doctor's office or the ER a lot less. Right. Because today, you know, a lot of the costs are people going to, to the doctor's offices when they when they don't need to. Right. And so one of the examples is is being able to do more remote patient monitoring. Right. To be able to put sensors on a patient's body or to allow them to use sensors from devices that they already have, like their cell phone or the wristwatch, uh, to be able to collect information, to know which patients who perhaps are recovering from uh, congestive heart failure or perhaps are at high risk of a stroke. You know, those patients who really are going to need intervention, right, and escalated intervention and ultimately end up in the physician's office, you know, but those patients who don't necessarily need the intervention can go around and live their lives, you know, and maybe interact with a chat bot or maybe interact with, with a physician asynchronously, you know, or maybe uh, go into an, to a, a schedule appointment that maybe gets accelerated by a couple of weeks, but not necessarily end up in the emergency room, right, where the, the cost of care rises, uh, rises really dramatically. I realize you're working with startups who are very excited about the future, but do you get pushback from the medical community? Uh, I know the legal community is is deeply concerned about yep. AI. What about the medical community? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I do think there's. I'm I'm a big fan of thinking of the A as augmented, you know, rather than truly artificial, right? I I believe in the human in the loop intervention, right? Technology and service combined, right? I think those are where most of the the advances are going to be made. Um, and I think that makes physicians feel a lot better, right? That, that human judgment, being able to have the a, a, a artificial intelligence or an, an algorithm can only recognize things that it's seen before, right? It's not these things are not good at taking completely novel information and knowing what to do with it, right? That's where human judgment is is important. And at least in the near term, I think the number of corner cases, the number of edge cases, the number of things that are just a little bit different. Right, are sufficiently high that the risk of, of replacing humans is, is, is extreme. Um, and so the ability to then uh, couple it with a physician, I think, makes physicians feel a lot better. Um, you know, I think being able to show that it's well-validated. Um, Eric Topol wrote a recent book about, uh, about the potential for the use of AI in healthcare. I think there's some really great things. I recommend that to, to, to a lot of people that I talk to, you know, of being able to, you know, A, allow physicians to exert more empathy, right, to spend their time with people, you know, instead of punching stuff into the EHR, which they do a lot of today. 
right? But also to ask the, the algorithms to be more validated, right? To put them through the paces of understanding all of the pos possible corner cases before deploying them clinically. Yeah, I think those, those two things are going to have to happen for uh, these technologies to make a big difference in care. Big data and AI have been trendy uh, lately, and there it does seem to be this, this belief that, well, computers and big data and AI will just throw that at it, yeah. uh, and it will solve our problems. Yes. <laughs> uh, and it doesn't matter what the problem is. But it does seem like medicine is something that lends itself to this, because medicine is so much about measurable data. I mean, when a, a nurse or a doctor comes into the room, they're taking data, blood pressure, weight, uh, response time, that kind of stuff. Uh, absolutely. So you're getting a lot of data. Um, but I also think there's a lot of things that aren't being fully reduced to data, right? So I think it's, it is a great... Um, uh, it's grist for the mill, right? This information is, is critical for, uh, for uh, collecting um, and for... Uh, making decisions on. But as examples, you're not collecting, if you're just collecting data in the doctor's office, you're missing a ton of data about that person's life, right? A person sitting in a doctor's office feels differently. You know, it's only, it's a, their, their, their blood pressure is different often in the doctor's office than they are uh, at home, right? You're, you're not catching variations in, in weight or in respiration that might be present in their, in their home life. Um, and so I feel like the, the, you can get fooled sometimes into thinking you have enough data when, you know, A, you might need more data, right? But B, you might need a lot of other things that don't show up in the, in the health record today, right? Social determinants of health are a big one. Access to care, you know, the concern about algorithms being uh, too, uh, you know, frankly, too focused on white males and not enough on people of color or women or people from underrepresented communities, right? All these things are are places where you know an algorithm can have bias you know when when i think the 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 most surface way to think about it is oh just you know look at the data and everything will be okay more people are aware of this now that so much of a medical research and so much of drug delivery and so much of treatment uh, policies etc come from an average white male uh, not the doctor. Yeah. The the patient is assumed to be yes. an average white male, which means as we get into these these companies that run on algorithms, we're going to have to feed it data uh, that that is not just the average white male. Absolutely, I think that's one of the big issues in the genetic databases that have been created. Right, is that they tend to to be disproportionately white males. Right, I'm I'm Asian, uh, born here in the U.S., but. Uh, but as an example, you know, there are different genetic diseases that are prevalent in Asians. There are different um, prevalences of, of uh, different conditions, you know, and the genetic databases that are, that have been created are, some of them are not representative, you know, of my background, right? And that's true for everybody, right? And so the ability to, uh, to be able to exclude bias from these data sets, right, is really a function of sampling, right? You have to go out there and collect from these communities. And so there actually are some quite interesting startups that are trying to increase the the input of data from uh, from different communities that really represent the population that we're trying to, to provide provide healthcare for. Right, healthcare should be for everyone. Greg Gab, partner at Menlo Ventures. Sand Hill Road is produced by Sean Myers. Executive produced by Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni.